So welcome everyone to the Eastside Freedom Library and our monthly labor history film event. Um, this month, we're looking at the documentary film, uh, The Ghosts of Amistad. And uh, this evening, we're talking with historian Marcus Redeker, um, whose work not only informed the film, but Marcus himself uh, worked with the film crew on a journey to Sierra Leone uh, to shoot this film. So uh, welcome, Marcus. It's, it's great to have you here at the Eastside Freedom Library virtually if, if we can't do it in person. Um, what, what do you think people viewing this film should understand uh, in coming to this film? Well, first people need to know a little bit about the actual uh, uprising that took place on this vessel uh, called La Amistad in 1839. And that is fairly well known partly because of Steven Spielberg's film Amistad, but just to briefly set the stage with that, uh, on, a, on a short voyage from Havana to a sugar region uh, north, in the north side of Cuba, a group of Africans, all of whom came from Sierra Leone, rose up and captured the ship and then managed to sail it 1,600 miles to the northern end of Long Island, where they were then taken by the United States Navy uh, taken to New London, Connecticut, uh, then to New Haven, and thrown in jail and charged with piracy and murder. So then a group of uh, abolitionists came into the jail and they began to organize a really fascinating uh, legal campaign uh, out of the cooperation between these mostly middle-class abolitionists and this group of African insurrectionists. So it's a really unusual kind of cooperation. Uh, and to make a long story short, after a long, lengthy uh, legal challenge, the case made its way through the court, courts all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Amistad Africans were eventually awarded their freedom, to everyone's surprise, and they were allowed to go home to Sierra Leone. So this is a, a, a big event in the struggle against slavery, uh, and also one of the relatively few successful revolts from below. So I published a book uh, called The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom, which uh, appeared in 2012. There, you there go. it is. And uh, a colleague of mine, Conrad Tookshire, said, let's go to Sierra Leone and talk with people about the book there. And so uh, I was very excited about that. I was able to arrange to take a film crew, including the, the eminent director of working class film, Tony Buba. Uh, but our, our objectives evolved in the sense that we didn't just wanna to talk to people about the book, we wanted to talk to people about the history and conduct interviews. So while we were in Sierra Leone in May, 2013, we visited the villages that the original Amistad rebels had come from to interview elders about their memory of this event through the oral tradition. Uh, and we also uh, launched a search for a slave trading factory called Lomboko, where all of the Amistad Africans were held before they were shipped uh, across the Atlantic to Cuba. So that's, that's how the film happened uh, within the larger context of the book. 
Um, it's interesting to bring up the question of memory in this historical moment that we're living in where monuments are being torn down. Uh, there's a great deal of debate in the academy and in communities about uh, how memory is constructed and, and recognized. Um, so uh, you didn't find any statues uh, to thank you and, and the leaders of the revolt, did you? There is one in New Haven now. Uh -huh. Uh huh. A good thing, and and the and the the rebels are known in Sierra Leone, but very unevenly. Mm -hmm. Or there has been an embrace of this history. Uh, a leading Sierra Leonean playwright named Charlie Hafner uh, did a fascinating uh, thing. He wrote a play called Amistad Kata Kata. And then he went around and performed the play in village after village in order to educate people um, in this very poor society about this great moment of Sierra Leonean history. Wow. Uh, so, so there is some memory that's yeah. there. What we were after was, uh, you might say, local memory, memory mm. in the villages. And we visited about 10 villages. And as you might expect, uh, in three or four of them, there was no memory. Uh, in two or three of them, there was some memory. But in two of them, there was a lot of memory. Uh -huh. uh, and it was really uh, important to see how the story had been passed down. That's great. Um, I know that uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about your kind of perspective as a historian. Um, uh, you talk about yourself and people talk about you as an Atlantic historian. Um, and then also as very much a historian of shipboard work relations, rebellions, mutinies, piracy. Mm -hmm. um, what drew you to the Atlantic as a scope and uh, the life of sailors on board ships and and, and their forms of resistance as a focus? Well, Peter, as, as you know, Atlantic history is a very hot field for scholarship right now. And basically for people who may not know, it's a history that links uh, Western Europe, West Africa, North America, the Caribbean and South America in their common experiences, which are many in the rise of capitalism. The Atlantic is kind of the cradle of capitalism. So I became an Atlantic historian a little bit by accident because I started studying pirates and sailors. And just in watching where they went around the Atlantic, I had to learn about all these other parts of that huge world. Uh, in, in England, for example, in West Africa, and especially the Caribbean. The Caribbean is kind of the hinge of Atlantic history, mm. really probably its most important region. Uh, and my reasons for wanting to study sailors were was basically that I felt like sailors had been left out of labor history, uh -huh. that we concentrated so much on uh, factory workers who tended to be uh, white and male and skilled, that there were all these other parts of the working class that just weren't getting attention. Uh, and sailors, to me, seemed like one of the most important groups to the working class because they're the ones who built the international economy, mm -hmm. they're the ones who connected the oceans 
and, and the oceans and the, the land masses around it, and they thereby created the world market. Their mm -hmm. labor created the world market. So, so I, even though I went off to graduate school many years ago to become a historian of slavery, I ended up becoming a maritime historian instead uh, uh, with a focus on labor and then worked my way back around to the issues of slavery. Uh-huh. And um, I, I want you to tell one story of the many that you've told over the years that grabbed me. And, and that was the story of the so-called runaway slave uh, Caesar um, who had no legs. Um, and, and I wonder if you would just tell that story and what that teaches us about sailors. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's especially interesting, Peter, because the book I'm writing right now is about escaping slavery by sea. Ah, uh -huh. People like Caesar become very important. Basically, what I found in, in doing research on advertisements for uh, runaways and every colonial newspaper, every early national newspaper is filled with this evidence of resistance. I came across this man known to us only by the name Caesar, who, who worked on a ferry boat and was always quite a maritime figure and extremely well connected. And uh, one day his master discovered that he was missing. He had undoubtedly gotten away by sea. And so he put in this advertisement for a runaway uh, and the last fact that he mentioned about him was that he didn't have any legs. So I, I thought long and hard about this and tried to find more information. And then a few years later, I found another advertisement for Caesar, who apparently had been recaptured but ran away again. So the, the extraordinary thing about this story is the determination of this man with no legs to get away to freedom. And as far as I know, the second time he succeeded. So if you want to understand something about what we might call revolutionary will, mm. uh, the will to be free, this man Caesar is a great example of it. Wow. But it's also a story of solidarity, right? That, exactly. that, that he needed the, the collaboration of onboard sailors uh, in order to make his two escapes. That's the thing, there is this lateral cooperation within the working class whereby dock workers and sailors who are uh, black and white and every other color you can imagine, uh, their cooperation as they do the work of the port city is really what makes this kind of escape possible. So there are literally thousands of people like Caesar who managed mm -hmm. to get away by sea, but we know very few of their stories. And they are such gripping stories about such extraordinary people. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why I was drawn to, to writing a book about it. Yeah, them. yeah. Um, and I think that you present the ship as a kind of fulcrum of, of class formation, both the conflict between management on the ship, the captain, uh, and the solidarity among the sailors. Uh, and when you talk about this revolt on the Amistad, you, you go through a kind of typology or series of stages mm -hmm. by which shipboard revolts took place. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, very important to know that sailors were among the first 
wage laborers uh, within the rise of capitalism, uh, that they were on the cutting edge of new class relations. Uh, and they did, by the way, as, as you know very well, Peter, it was sailors who invented the strike yeah. to take down the sails of a ship in the middle of a wage dispute. This happened in London in 1768. You take down the sails of the ship, the ships don't go anywhere, capital doesn't accumulate, and the working class has a new kind of power, uh, the strike. So I began to see ships as real places where class mm. formation took place, where race formation took place, but also as, as a kind of site where there was very creative resistance from below. And I mean that literally, literally. from below, from below decks, mm -hmm. uh, in some cases sailors, in many cases enslaved people. Uh, and that, that was the history that I sought to recover. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and so why did you decide that a movie was a way that you wanted this story to be told? After um, all, there already is the Spielberg movie. Um, my view of the Spielberg movie is that for people who have seen it, it, uh, it won't do too much damage to your view of history. Mm -hmm. But my entire approach in the book that I wrote was to argue that the key to understand the Amistad Rebellion was the history of the Africans who captured the ship. Mm -hmm. It was the history of their military training as warriors back in Sierra Leone as their villages tried to protect themselves against the slave trade. The, the marauding groups who would come in to capture uh, bodies and take them to the slave trading factories like Lomboko, uh, where the Amistad Africans ended up. So I, I, was, I wanted to write a story of the Amistad that wasn't about John Quincy Adams mm -hmm. uh, or the white abolitionists and the like. I wanted to make the Amistad Africans the, the heart of the story. It was their rebellion. If they don't rise up and seize that ship, John Quincy Adams has no one to defend before the Supreme Court. So I wanted to make them part of the story. And as it turns out, uh, labor history is a really significant part of it. Yeah. It turns out there was a campaign of donations to support the Amistad Africans that collected money from working people of all kinds. Really? I found amazing records of this, uh, this tanning pit with 16 workers had contributed $2.49 to the Amistad Committee. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so this was a very broad-based movement and, and, I, and we had really never been taught to think about it that way before. Mm -hmm. It's interesting in this moment, I mean, there's not only uh, the Spielberg movie about Amistad, but there's now this very controversial uh, uh, television, cable television show um, based on the, the book, The Good Lord Bird, um, about John Brown and putting John Brown at the center of the story. And um, so how, how do you see the struggle to put an end to slavery in terms of working class participation, both, both black and white? Well, I, I think it's absolutely critical. And I, and I do believe it's, it's important for us to know and to remember that the first, the first abolitionists are the enslaved people themselves. Yeah. It is their struggle. They are the front line of this battle. And as they wage it, they do acquire allies. 
And the abolitionist movement in many, way, many ways grows up as a response to resistance from below in the South. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is what I think the Amistad case, case proves. Here you've got this rebellion and it just mobilizes all kinds of people in the North. Uh, the, the Amistad Africans mm -hmm. become celebrities mm -hmm. in the North. So I think uh, labor history is important to this in a lot of different ways. Right now, I'm just writing about uh, a sailor named Jonathan Walker, who helped seven uh, enslaved people escape Pensacola, Florida in 1844, only at the very last minute to be recaptured. Uh, and it's very clear if you read about this man, learn about his life, that the solidarity that he learned at sea Mm -hmm. Sailors have a very high level of solidarity, like coal miners, for example, mm -hmm. uh, primarily because their jobs uh, are so dangerous. Mm -hmm. The solidarity that he, he learned at sea, he applied to a much broader group of workers, basically enslaved workers, and those people deserve solidarity too. So you see that there are all these kind of hidden connections and cross currents that that we've really never been taught to appreciate, partly because Black history and labor history have been falsely disconnected. Mm -hmm. It's a great point for us to end on. Um, so much of our work at the Eastside Freedom Library is, is to try to be a site of intersection uh, among movements and among experiences. Um, so we're gonna watch this film, The Ghosts of Amistad, um, if you have questions, um, please use the chat or comment functions on Facebook and YouTube, however you're looking at this. Um, and I'll be available after the film. Hopefully Marcus will be available as well. Um, and then join us later this month uh, on uh, Tuesday, December. What is that date? I've lost track. Uh, the ne next Tuesday night, um, where we will be in discussion with Marcus about a piece that he's written about the poetics of history from below, um, as we continue to bring strands together um, and weave new cloth uh, for the history of the future. Um, Marcus, thank you so much. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Um, you're in for a great film and a great evening. Thank you. Until I came out with that pamphlet that was commissioned by the United States Information Service um, and so on, nobody knew a thing. Nobody ever knew a thing about it. You hear about slavery, you hear about Shemmepie, you hear about Amistad, Amistad, Kata, Kata. A lot of people came up to me and said, this Amistad thing, um, I can't really believe that. <laughs> um, 
And I said, well, why not? Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, it's too big. The story of the Amistad is a story inside a story. It is a story that needs to be told for us to understand that. Amistadu, Amistadu, A M I S T A D. Amistad. So, uh, Marcos, what's the voice our visit? We want to begin now. Mm -hmm. uh, like I to them. Why, 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 why are we here? We are here to learn about the history of this region. This is part of a project on a history of the Amistad Rebellion. All of the people involved in this rebellion were from the Galinas region. Long time ago, in the era of your great-great-grandfathers in slavery times, a group of people were taken from here to Lomboco on the Galinas coast and put on slave ships. Some of these people were captured in war, some were kidnapped, and they were sold to King Shaka, who then sold them to a Spanish slave trader. These people were taken to Cuba, sold, then loaded onto another ship called Amistad. These men, mostly men, four children, made a revolt on board the ship and captured it. The ship sailed to the north, to the United States, where they were captured and put in jail. They went to court, and the question was, should they be sent as slaves back to Cuba, or should they gain their freedom? It was a big surprise. The American court ruled that they should be free. Eight months later, they returned to Freetown, and many of them returned to their families. This was a very big event in the struggle against slavery. We want to know if uh, you or the elders know about Sengbepi. You know, I'm a traditional historian who works with documents. Almost all the documents about the Amistad case are here in the United States. So to do the book that I did in a fairly traditional way, it didn't require a trip to Sierra Leone. Having studied the event, I then knew that I had to really figure out who these people were. Where had they come from in Sierra Leone? What were their experiences in Sierra Leone? What kinds of things had happened to them back there that equipped them to capture this slave ship? Between 1750 and 1850, slavers forced a quarter of a million people aboard slave ships in the ports of Sierra Leone, ghostly vessels full of lost souls bound for the plantations of the Americas. A person very knowledgeable about that country, Conrad Tuxer of St. John's University, said, 
Let's take the book to Sierra Leone and talk to people there about it. We recruited his colleague Philip Misevich, another Sierra Leone specialist, to join us. Both Conrad and Phil had helped me a great deal in writing the book, published in 2012. Now they help to organize our trip to Sierra Leone. They have guest house in Puerto Rico. Yeah, we can sleep in Puerto Rico yeah. once. You can't just show up there and start that kind of work. We needed connections. We needed a connection to someone like Tazif Karoma, lecturer in linguistics at Fura Bay College. Tazif himself was from this region, southern Sierra Leone. He knows all the chiefs. He stays in touch with them. We came into a situation in which we were trusted. Tazif is an amazing on-the-ground guy. He knows how to address problems that come up in the midst of field work, which are frequent. He has essentially played some and often a great role in every scholar who's done some sort of work on Sierra Leone for the past probably three decades. We were also very fortunate to have two skilled and knowledgeable drivers, Cherno and Jibriel, and a very well-known filmmaker from Freetown named Idris Kapanga. We went to Sierra Leone to recover a lost history from below. We wanted to deepen our understanding of the uprising of 1839, especially the Amistad rebels themselves. We wanted to make them real as people, as makers of history. We wanted a visual sense of the countryside, a feeling for place, their place, their world, before the ordeal of enslavement. We wanted to restore the essential African side of the story. That was our objective. So this is the, the area we're going. So what we're going to do is, we're going to this area, this area. We wanted to find Lomboko, a slave trading factory where the ghastly voyage into slavery began, and we wanted to find the home villages of the Amistad Africans. Every time we went to a new region, we had to get authorization to speak to people from a paramount chief and a section chief. They were responsible for our well-being as visitors, and they needed to know our purposes. As we showed respect for the chiefs and sought their goodwill, we were, in fact, showing respect to all of the people of the region. Even though we had credibility given to us by Tazif, and even though we had the permission of various chiefs to be there, we were still uncertain how we would be received when this group of outsiders rolled into a village with many questions. <laughs> 
discussions with the elders were challenging. We had to understand the complexities of Mende culture and approach them accordingly. So we're interested in the history of this village. We had all been talking about how important it is to ask what we often call these kind of open-ended questions. You know, instead of saying, we want to talk right about the Amistad, uh, Tazif was great in particular in this case, you start with questions like, well, tell me about the history of your town. Tell me about the leaders who founded the town. And if you can get them to give up information uh, that coincides with, that supports the evidence from the Amistad case, that's a surefire way of building up a stronger case of evidence. But if you feed them information, you're never really sure whether you're, they're telling you what they think you want to hear or something else entirely. We were in search of Sengbei's home village, and Conrad had the exceptional idea that he should talk to people who really knew this country by driving around in it. We uh, consulted lorry drivers yeah. and took a map, uh, went to a, a local station in Kenema and uh, had the help of some 20 lorry drivers who all, you know, put the, 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 the points for us uh, and showed us where we would look. And I think this was actually the key to figuring out which region Sengbei came from. Mm -hmm. uh, we still have more work to do on this, but uh, I do feel that we eliminated some of the other mm -hmm. sites by the same name uh, and that we were really in the right place. Simbe lived in Jawe. She had it from her father. Yes, he was a very strong man. He was a very strong at what her father told her. He said he was liked by the by the warrior, the leader. He said Shigbe was released. He went and he was released. Does she know what happened to this man eventually? She's saying that. She said that well, she's too old now, she cannot remember. Do you yield anything good there? We, we, we couldn't really get what we were looking for in the sense that uh, none of the evidence that we had was really firmly confirmed by people here. The region where we were traveling was a hot spot for the civil war in Sierra Leone between 1991 and 2002, and in fact, we saw the effects of this daily. We saw it in village poverty, 
in recently filled cemeteries, even in the roads which were rutted and bombed out to prevent the transport of government troops. Long-standing poverty caused by the slave trade and British imperialism had been made worse by war. It was uh, hot, we were on the road very long hours, and at times we had great frustration because we couldn't find what we were looking for. This area, we have to sit in a canoe. The canoe's not good for the no, no, equipment, no. the we'll filming Daru. equipment. Not advisable. After okay. Daru, we'll can, uh, uh, yeah, so we'll go to Daru. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. We're going to pay a quick visit to the Paramount chief. So just you going? No, we all, he wants all of us to go. There's no way to deny that request. Um, He's, the Paramount chief's here in Shebwema, too. There's no way our map reading was going to be anything other than a communal event. I, yep. <laughs> So uh, we, we learned something. Sengbei's village had been completely destroyed by the wars of slavery times. So we were eager to ask people about a place an American scribe wrote down as Mani. Thank you for greeting us in your village. Yeah, I said, Wakauma. Did, did anyone ever hear of a village around here that might have been destroyed in war called Mani? They had, a, they had a very good historian here, he's talking about. He kept the things in his head, but he just died in February. February. February, died in February. This brings to mind the famous words spoken by the African sage, Amadou Hampateba. In Africa, when an elder dies, a library burns down. But if they had known anything here that made us think that this was the region, but there was nothing. It's clear this is a relatively new town. Yeah, they, when they were reciting the genealogy leadership, it, it went about three generations. Phil has brought uh, a wealth of knowledge to this project uh, because he understands how African names are often uh, transcribed, um, and not just transcribed by outsiders, but transcribed by outsiders according to where uh, they come from and yes. what kinds of traditions of transcription they have in their home countries. Mm -hmm. And I think that for others, they might miss those things if they don't have a deep knowledge of the Mende. Right. Mm -hmm. So what Tazif would frequently do is sound out the name several different ways. It could be this, it could be that. Kalumbu or Kalumbu or Bunge or Gonge, Amani or Maina. Maina. Maina is here. We conducted numerous interviews in the Galinas region. This was the home, the seat of power, of the great Vai King Shaka, the leading slave trader in the entire region. So we can begin now in a systematic order. So, Madam Gulenamwe, Kay said, Bear, Bear, 
He says the first crown, that crown they talk about, was given to King Shaka. Bye. He will not tell your figure. White man. White man gave him. My queen, my brother, now. Tazif, could you say something about why those people were so suspicious of us? Because they did talk to us, but there was a tension there that we didn't find really anywhere else. Well, they thought that we are comfortable to collect the crown. So the crown is important to them as a symbol of the opportunity of the massacre. Which is still a powerful family. Yeah. See a powerful family, but not out of power now. So if you're out of power, who can come? There are suspicions that we can go to get their crown. We are, we are there to get their crown back and give it to the central government. That will be the end of the history. But that's the only thing that is left now. How, does, how do the people of this village feel about King Shaka? King Shaka is not my wife. King Shaka is not my wife. My wife is not my wife. He was a good man for the white people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He said, Kishaka used to fill the ship with young men, young boys, women, and men, take them to somewhere in Europe or America. Then when they came back, they brought booze of Pade with gunpowder. And what we found in the village of Blama is a cannon that was sent here by King Shaka in order to fortify this village. He would have gotten this cannon from Pedro Blanco. So this cannon probably goes back to the 1830s, right around the time that the Amistad Africans were captured and shipped out of Lomboco, which was owned by Pedro Blanco, the man who provided this cannon. So this demonstrates the dynamics of the trade. Ask the speaker if there are any other things in the village from King Shaka's time. They had posts, then they had these long knives. Very long knives, the war knives were here. They are taken away. Interesting. There are several of them. Interesting. What do you go? This is the only surviving one. There are others. But they survive. Yeah. 
the proverb. You should tell tell yeah. uh, yeah. tell yeah. tell, mm? tell this man right here with the proverb. Okay. When whether you sleep one or two nights, when you are going back, they give us a small token to keep the fire burning. But we have been taking that's quality means fire stick. The fire stick they cooked for it for you using wood. Somebody has to replace that wood so that the fire can keep keep on burning. It is an ancient tradition in many parts of Africa for those people who come in search of something to provide a gift to those they visit. It is a courtesy. It shows respect for knowledge and appreciation for their willingness to share it with us. It also sent a message to all of the younger people of the village. Look at these people who have come such a great distance to speak to our elders. Gendema, which was the seat of Shaka's sort of empire, uh, was incredibly wealthy based off of the slave trade. And you know, one of the interesting points about visiting it now, it was, I mean, it was so inaccessible. Uh, roads that were virtually closed, driving through high grassland area where you couldn't even see the road ahead of you. And upon arrival, just the, I mean, the absolute feeling of, of, of poverty in that area. Now, part of that, of course, is from the, the more recent civil war, but I think there's a deeper story to be told about the transition away from the slave trade in the 19th century which ultimately led toward the decline uh, of Gendema. We are in a place that is very important to the Amistad story at this moment. This is really the center uh, of power for the slave trade as it existed in 1839. King Shaka's armies would go out into different regions. They would capture entire villages. They would all end up at Lomboko. And as he expanded his empire into the interior, in the 1830s, this is the point at which those people who would eventually be on the Amistad were caught in its catchment area. Gendema, the famous Gendema, was desolate, and uh, to see King Shaka's grave overgrown. Yeah. I don't know the number of people who are buried here, but the person I know that was buried here first was King Shaka. When uh, King Shaka was chief, there was another man called Amalalu. Mm -hmm. So he left Gindima, where he had gone up Amalau, and came and founded a town here called uh, Bangoma. Just Bangoma just about three miles from this town. We'll visit there. Mm -hmm. As King Shaka expanded his influence, he came into conflict with other chiefs. One of them was his own stepson, Amalau. Sengbe and at least one other man among the Amistad Africans fought with Amalau against Shaka. Mm. He, I used to hear that he was, Amalau was a very big warrior here. He never saw him. But those ones who I worked with who are older than myself, they used to explain this to me, narrate these stories to me. Okay. Okay. He went, he had a small village called where they have those stream down in the After this river, there's a small stream here which we cross. That was where he beat his village. So we can go to the site. This would help us. Those slaves he got built this embankment. Mm -hmm. Forced labor, 
So this is the dog far and, and put this thing. So what they did was, it was not just that one trench. Mm -hmm. What they did was, they dug a series of uh, mm -hmm. holes so people can lie down there, waters mm -hmm. can lie down. So this is one of the holes. He may have had about 50 such holes where the fighters or the warriors would lie down in case the other one was breached. You have to walk. You have good shoes. <laughs> you also have good shoes. It's, I don't have good shoes. In doing history from below, what I always wanted to know is how do working class people experience history? How do they shape it? How do they contribute to the active making of history? And the Amistad case is a perfect example of that. Capturing a slave ship was very hard to do. Hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of people had tried to do that, and the overwhelming majority of them failed. So why were they successful? How did they do it? So the very first thing they would have done is to elect Leader. Professor Ernest Ndomahina is a senior member of the Wundi, the Mende Secret Warrior Society, and a repository of extraordinary knowledge about the culture of Mende warriors. Or they could have asked questions around, so who among us has any war experience? What would be the qualities or the characteristics of a great Mende warrior? He was one, the first quality of a warrior they had was he was willing to lead, to risk being killed first in case of an attack. So he was, he, he had ability to, to risk leading and he could not reverse decisions. Whatever decision you take, you don't reverse it. You don't reverse it at all. Yeah. Okay. You must, you must have a cultural talisman so in your neck or somewhere in your body. You should always have it. So every leader has it, you see. Like even this last war that we were in Sierra Leone. Mm. We are having some Muslims that they, they can go and then Medicine do some, uh, do some cultural uh, performances on your body, mm -hmm. on the on a shirt, then give you some certain things. If you have it, they can even point gun at you. Nothing will happen to you. That's, mm -hmm. yeah. uh -huh. Because so, we usually do it. So uh, in first in, in the in the olden days, they were having almost the same thing. The most experienced person in war would be chosen as the leader. As the leader, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, this was the same thing. He was the leader of the rebellion from the first moment. What, what does Chief Lamin see in this image? What does he think about this man? They feel so happy and proud uh -huh. whenever they see such a man. Uh -huh. Although he's not alive now, uh -huh. but we feel proud of him. All of the historical evidence says that Singbei was a great speaker, yeah, a great orator. And, and sometimes he would speak before a great crowd of Americans. And he would speak in Mende. And even though the Americans couldn't understand him, they still said he was a great speaker. <laughs> in the hold of the Amistad, you had Mende people, mostly Mende. You had Bandi, you had Tenne, 
-hmm. you had Gola, you had Kono, Sherbro. How do they cooperate when they don't speak the same language? No, that is an assumption you're making. The Bandi, the Gula, they will speak Mende, the Shabros will speak Mende, all right? And some corners will speak Mende. But there is one other common strand you've not seen. What is they are all members of the Poro. Being a member of the Poro society is a secret society, but it goes across tribes. And all the Kra tribes you've called all have it. They also had certain things in common. The secrecy, the oath, and the loyalty to that secret society could have brought them together. The Poro society was central to the rebellion. Central to the rebellion. Central to their ability to organize themselves. It goes across the tribes. That's the point. Because there were nine or ten different ethnicities in the whole of that ship. Do you think in, let's say, Mende country, in the villages, there is any surviving memory of the Amistad story? Independent of... No, not real, not the Amistad story as, as such, but it is known that there are warriors that were captured and came back. When our discussion in Falu began, we knew we were in a very good place. And in fact, we could have predicted that this was our most likely site of success because we had two people who came from this village and at least one, probably two, returned uh, after the Amistad Africans came back to Sierra Leone in 1842. So that meant there was a greater likelihood that there would be surviving stories. Because he asked the question about the history of this village. The one who founded this town, and we had in the record that both of the Amazon Africans had said that their king was named Bobo. So at that moment, I knew we were in the right place. Now, we had not yet told the people there that this is why we were interested, nor that we had this particular warrior king in mind. Two of the men who made the revolt were from this village. First man named Gilawaru. The second man's name is Fabana. Fabana. A couple more facts. First, when these two men were asked who they were, they said, both said, we are Fulu, we are from Fulu, and our king is Bobo. This is what they said in America. When we did get to that point, there was this electrical current through the entire group, and I will never forget the look on that elder's face. His face lit up with the recognition that this was one of their people because they had a common king. And this is the African way of reckoning history, of remembering the history. Also very important to know mm. that these men came back to Freetown. And then we think they came back to this village after they returned to Sierra Leone. 
So we would like to know if anything is remembered about them from either before they left here or after they returned. Nothing is remembered. Nothing. Nothing. So most of the others, who knows? This one is just a little Pass away. Pass away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe. Mm -hmm. They didn't come back. They didn't come back. They didn't come as far as here. Yeah. They must have yeah. come to the east, yeah. but they didn't come as far as here. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they didn't come back here to this town to okay. follow. Can I, can I give them some more information? Glaro was a very important man among the Amistad, Africa. Yeah. second most important after Shingbe. He worked as a trader and traveled very widely around this area. Yeah. Okay. Spoke Gola, Kisi, Vai, many languages. Mm. So because of... Because, <laughs> na, 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 they are not going to go to the village. They are going to go to What is your language? Kisi, Vai. Kisi. Kakao ye. All the all the languages of the region. They said we came he changed his name. Uh, he remembers that he came back. Yes. Yeah, he came back. The, the white uh, men who came along with him, yes, the white they men said, came. you have now joined us. So they gave me the name Johnny. That, yes. was, that was what he said. His people, his family, call him Johnny. Johnny. He has joined the family. Johnny. He was a trader. Uh -huh. He traveled widely uh -huh. yes. uh -huh. throughout the country. He was all? He used to speak, see, Gula, Vai, even English, broken English. I had asked Azif, how did it happen that someone got a new name? And he said the community will give someone a new name, because especially of after a new set of experiences yes. by which he seems to have been changed. Mm. So having lived among English-speaking people, mm. an English name was chosen. And it was Johnny. Jim. Would the uh, elder lady like to say anything? Has she heard of Johnny? Johnny, my Johnny That's his, that's his grandfather, grandfather. Johnny. <laughs> Johnny is her grandfather? Yes. The, the granddaughter. She's descended from Johnny. Yeah. I, I can show people a picture of him. He came back. He came back and became a chief. Okay. I'm going to show that. Which one? This in the middle, right here. This is the man right here. Aquile. This man right here from, from this village. This way, this way. Okay, okay, okay. In Mende culture, ancestors loom very large. 
The spirits of ancestors are considered to be live and present, literally on the landscape, part of everyday life. And I realized that in talking about the history of this man who had been part of the village, in recounting his history from sources that they could not have known, we were in a way bringing an ancestor home, or at least we were bringing that ancestor's history. And this was something they seemed to value uh, in a very important way. You are all part of our history. He fears you are not taking the history for the purpose of retaliation. <laughs> I don't understand. You don't understand. You are getting all this history, you get all the facts, and you go and prosecute them. And in that moment, I felt that the ghost of race and slavery and colonialism was literally hovering just above our heads. No, no. No, you never, not a history, you saw me again. a teacher. That he would worry about this event that took place more than 170 years ago, that there might somehow be consequences, uh, negative consequences, punishments for him and his village in the present. I thought that was a powerful statement about the history of Sierra Leone. They said, you didn't go, he said, where well, their great great grandfather went and killed some white man there. So we are putting information, so we, when you, one day we're putting event. That's, that's their fear, so they don't want to say anything again. <laughs> Okay. You see, they don't, they are fearless and brave in this area because they all know they came from warriors. They don't speak, that's why they are, <laughs> that's why they are brave. They don't speak low. They, when they want to speak in public, they speak, everybody should hear. You want to visit Baba's grave? Yes, Baba, Baba, Baba. This one is headstone for Bobo. The, their grandfathers, the grandfathers yes. saw it, but the grandfathers put this stone there. I see. In many cases, uh, it was disappointing that there wasn't much memory of the Amistad case or even of what they called slavery times. Do you think contemporary generations know enough about the slave trade? You they don't. Your own generation. My own generation, will, now they don't. That hasn't no, 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 it hasn't continued. That's a saying that if you want to hide something from an African, put it in a book. <laughs> Are there reasons to think that people should be studying the history of the slave trade? This is one of the greatest events in human history. It's great. Its legacy and ramifications are with us and are going to be around for a very long time to come. The British fortress on Bunce Island off Sierra Leone is one of many monumental slave trading fortresses that dot the coast of West Africa. It is haunted by the spirits of thousands of people who, in utter terror, passed through. 
For almost all of them, this was the last place they would ever stand on African soil before they were loaded onto slave ships and carried to South Carolina, Cuba, or Brazil. The fortress on Bunce Island symbolizes the moment when the slave trade was a legal, lucrative business that actually drove the Atlantic economy for a couple of centuries, providing the bodies whose labors on New World plantations would create unimaginable wealth. The basis of the slave trade was violence and terror used to transport people across the Atlantic and literally to dehumanize them, to transform them into property as slaves. The violence in Africa, on the Middle Passage, and in the Americas killed millions. A moral reckoning with the slave trade requires us to think about the mass death that characterized this prolonged and horrific phase of world history. We wanted to find Lomboko, a slave trading factory where all the rebels were incarcerated before they were loaded onto slave ships. Other researchers had been looking for it for nearly half a century. We wanted to experience that place. We spent the days in southern Sierra Leone hearing from various elders that our hopes of finding Lomboko were futile. Lomboko is just a name of a river. A transit point. A transit point. So Lomboko means a, a place where you come from and get well soaked. Everything has turned to bush. Some people have lived there for more than 100 years. They have left there more than 100 years ago. So there's nothing left there. And we were discouraged. We stopped uh, uh, in a small village, and Tazif got out of the car and began to ask people. What did they ever have? Whatever they have now, but whatever they have, whatever their grandfathers have ever had or told them of a particular area called Lomboko. Mm -hmm. So we went to a village which is very close. You see, to determine. Have you ever heard about right. this village, a place called Lomboko? Two uh, fishermen, they're about 18 years old. Mm -hmm. They have been, they get their living in that whole mangrove area. They told us, it's very simple, we know about Lomboko, it's there. They said, take to Mina. So, this is the island. Okay. Lomboko is the island. So there's a river here. So, they are fishermen. They catch fish here. Bring me then they are going to know where they eat. So when they come with the boat, they stop here and climb the island. Ah. It's Island, they look around. Look, no, to fishing. Mm. 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 Mm.
These two boys know the place. And the island itself is called Lomboko? Jomboko. Jomboko. What about you, mother? Jomboko. Jomboko. So the name is. Poblate, I think you will tell you Boko. John Boko, but the white man wrote it wrongly. So what do you want to know more? Well, can we go there? Yeah, it's safe. Two at a time. Or three at a time. But you can always swim. If you want, if you like. Yeah, we can sacrifice one person for crocodiles. <laughs> oh, you have crocodiles in the river? Yeah, of course. And you're going to have to And the canoe will capsize. No, let's not assume that. <laughs> well, I don't think it was wise that the three of us climbed in the same canoe, given, yeah, the, given, our, given our combined weight. Uh, but we managed. was designed to be hard to find, yes, like Pedro wonderful. Blanco, but That's it was right. this maze of mangrove roots, and right. you turn here and you turn there. It was exciting. We were taking on water at one point. That's right. We didn't almost sink, but we didn't quite yeah. float the whole way. <laughs> taken us almost an hour by canoe to get from the riverbank near the village to the actual island. When we arrived on Lomboko, we saw immediately that this island had a sandy beach unlike any other. Pedro Blanco used slave labor to build a landing place for the canoes of African traders when they arrived with slaves to sell. So you can see, the sand here, it's different from the other sand. The other place is small. A lot of mud, so but what, what, what Pedro and the slavers, when the camp here did was, they forced people to bring sand from the sea. Mm -hmm. We have reached a major destination in this trip. 
We came here hoping to find uh, the elusive and important Lomboko. Lomboko symbolizes the illegal phase of the slave trade. Great Britain abolished the slave trade in 1807 and thereafter turned against it, patrolling the West African coast to intercept slave ships and to prevent their delivery of slaves across the Atlantic. Lomboko was therefore not a huge building of brick and stone, a monument, but rather a bunch of hastily constructed slave pens that could be abandoned very quickly if the British should show up. This part of the Lomboko complex contained barracoons, or slave-holding pens. There was no other reason for any other building to be on this island. What's he saying? What he, what he did was, was, when Pedro came, he came very late at night, so he used to put a, a canopy. This was the place he first put, put a lot of sand here. That's why I put the canopy where he lied down under and sat and held mm. me with, with his shaker. Mm. That was what his father did. He, he, he was making shaker here. Yes. Lomboko was the heart of darkness. Tales of its horrors traveled up and down the African coast. Canoes full of slaves being transported to the slave ships, overset in the rough surf, and as the bodies tumbled out into the water, they were ripped apart by sharks. After one such incident, the waters around Lomboko glowed red with blood as far as the eye could see. Foundation right here, another raised up with mm -hmm. basically saying it's like rotted wood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does the chief know anything about singing by PA? Mm. So what he did was his grandfather, you have to read and write. So because he was reading, he used to, I don't know how he was able to read about Sigmepia. Yes, what the missionaries were producing about. Oh, they are producing, that's why. The missionaries came back here and gave the story of the Amistad to people. Somebody wrote it. Yeah, so that's his grandfather, read one of those books. Ah, fascinating. Mm. They brought him here. So when the time was time to go, they brought him back here. And then shipped him. Shipped him out. He said he was not going. He rebelled initially. They said he rebelled initially. I come to watch here. He rebelled here. Yes, initially. Pray before you tell and I tell you go home. I tell you more. You go. And I tell you, I tell you, I go home. 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 I go so let me go oh, yeah, there and yeah, let yeah, you know yeah, where I was. Okay. Okay. Yeah. One, two. Now go inside. Go inside. Oh, 
The island was not a place of departure for the ships. The water was too shallow for a ship to come near. It was a holding spot, accessible by canoe only, hard to find, and an even harder place to escape. We're on the Keferi River. Long been known to be a slow, sluggish river, and we've caught it at a very beautiful time in the evening when the landscape is darker than the sky above. We're in an old dugout canoe, on the kind of canoe that's probably been used on this river for hundreds of years. We feel like we've tapped into a deep vein of local knowledge as we undertook this part of our search for the roots, the African roots of the Amistad Rebellion. We followed the ghostly spirits of the Amistad rebels to their villages, into the canoes and waterways that carried them from the interior to the Galenas coast, to the dreaded Lomboko where their voyage to the New World began, all of which made their lives, their choices, their determined actions, and ultimately their heroism more real to us. We heard stories about the Amistad Africans that were never before known to historians. For example, that Sengbe and his comrades rose up in rebellion on Lomboko before they ever left their native land. Their history from below, their inspiring tale of resistance to slavery began in Africa. What we found in Lomboko and Falu and throughout Sierra Leone was living memory of slavery, the slave trade in general and the Amistad case in particular. You know, we're dealing with the Amistad, which, of course, it's, it's been written about for, for decades. And here in a trip that took all of 10 days up line, we've uncovered a number of new and really suggestive ideas. What we've learned has come from knowledge on the ground, uh, whether it's coming from the fishermen uh, near Lomboko or it's coming from the lorry drivers in, in Kenema. It, and it's, you know, consulting these sources that enabled us to do the research that we've done. Our trip allowed us to speak to people, to hear their stories, to access their oral tradition and local memory, and in the end, to deepen, enrich, and most of all, humanize the history of the Amistad Rebellion. Baby, we Prime Minister, Baby, we President from Albert Academy. You hear about slavery, you hear about Shakespeare, you hear about Amistad, Amistad, Kata Kata.